Sing Second Sports is a ProVision Advisors production. Let us solve your toughest communication problems and leave your team stronger and more capable for the challenges that lie ahead. Visit www.provisionadvisors.net to learn more. All right. Hey, hey, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sing Second Sports Podcast. I am John Schofield, your host, former Academy PAO and graduate of Villanova University. The same 2-0 Villanova University Wildcats. It's going to go up to Mikey Stadium at Army this weekend and beat the Black Knights, but I digress. Joining me is Bill Wagner of the Capital Gazette and Baltimore Sun Newspapers and the host of the Navy Football Podcast with Eric Catani and Keenan Reynolds. You're going to hear from EK, Wags, and Keenan here in a minute to break down the Memphis game in more detail. And Chris Cervello is our producer. He's a 99 grad. And at this very moment, probably the most satisfied Orioles and Cowboys fan on the planet. This being Monday, September 12th. Let's get into it. I mentioned Memphis. Wags and the boys are going to break this down. So let's just give you a primer. Future Washington Commanders quarterback Seth Hennigan, because he just looks like a Commanders quarterback, threw for 415 yards and two touchdowns, and Memphis led all the way in a 37-13 drubbing of Navy on Saturday for the American Conference opener for both teams. Uh, The Tigers entered having not won a conference opener since beating us back in 2019, The highlight, or the low light rather, occurred when Hennigan threw a 79-yard TD pass to Joseph Skates, who got behind the D. He caught it in stride, raced untouched, and that gave the Tigers a 27 lead very early in the third quarter with about 12 minutes left. And and Chris, I I think it was right at that moment that the the air came out of that building, uh, if it hadn't already. Um, They had built, Memphis had built a 10-0 lead in the first before Lavatai got us on the board with that great scoring pass to Anton Hall. Um, Labatai threw for 99 yards overall. Mikel Haywood had 54 yards rushing. But, Chris, the mids are 0-2 again. What happened and why? And, you know, what needs to happen to, to not end up 0-3? Or is that inevitable? I worry that it's inevitable, John. Um, you, you mentioned um, the Navy football podcast. Um, we had the benefit. We taped that last night. So I, I know what they said. You're, you're going to get a great rundown of all the goods and the bads, mostly bads that happened on Saturday. So I'll, I'll skip that. I, I just, as a fan, I, I just don't know how we're here again. Um, you know, from a game standpoint, we were down, you, you know, just by six at halftime. There was a lot of hope that, you know, perhaps they would come out, um, they would get the ball, they would do something and that the game would be a lot closer. Obviously, that wasn't the case. Um, and then, you know, in the macro, it, it's just hard to believe that we're 0-2. And, and we're 0-2, I think we could easily be, you know, 0-10 unless there's a lot that changes. And that's what's that's what's frustrating. So I'm not going to be Debbie Downer on this Monday morning uh, for your podcast. I will say that there's a lot of work that needs to be done during this buy to get ready for ECU and get ready for Air Force, a very good Air Force team. 
Um, you know, Army is 0-2. I guess that's the the lone, uh, you know, highlight uh, in this and hopefully 0-3 after your uh, Villanova Wildcats go up there and beat them. But uh, it's kind of a, a, a gloomy Monday morning for me. You, you mentioned, I mean, what a shitty weekend, right? The Orioles lose twice, the Mids lose, and the Cowboys lose with Dak uh, Prescott going out with a, a hurt thumb. So. Yeah, shout out to Matt Munley who texted me late last night asking which of your dogs Chris Cervello was going to get kicked last night after all of the results of the weekend, particularly the Orioles. But Wags, really quick, because I know that you guys go into a deeper dive on this. For me, there were two plays in the fourth quarter, um, and I marked them down in my notes app here. At 13 minutes, we had the ball. The game was not yet out of hand. We were still in it. And we did an inside handoff on third and four. It was incredibly unimaginative. The drive had really like had some momentum up to that point. It turns into fourth down, a fourth down that we can't complete because the inside handoffs just were not getting yardage. And then, then the backbreaker for me was with nine minutes left. Memphis had committed a penalty. They're second and 17 and they get a screen pass or a little flat out for 50 yards and that really put the the foot down on our throats but it was like an assemblage of bad happenings up until then gone were the four fumbles and the three lost from the previous game but then right when we thought we had him Hennigan would throw for another deep ball you know 415 altogether was it was it more so that Newberry's defense couldn't you know, just hang in against that perpetual barrage because the offense couldn't get any time of possession going wags well, the offense is a really great concern. This does not look like the Navy offense that we have seen for the majority of the triple option era. And it's we're going on three seasons now of offensive struggles. And every time there's a glimmer of hope, it's followed by a poor performance. So I'm really, really concerned about the state of the offense. And I'm not sure at this point how the coaching staff – they, the coaching staff, these are the same coaches who – oversaw, you know, very successful offenses. So I, I, I don't know if it's a talent. I, I'm really getting concerned that it could be the talent level. Um, you know, the AAC is just getting better and better and better. Um, then, you know, you thought after Delaware game that, well, at least Navy will play tough defense and keep the offense in it. And if the offense can just get going and get, 24, 28 points, the Navy could win games. But then the defense goes out, and that was um, – Memphis out-schemed him. It's as simple as that. The ball is thrown over guys' heads, or Memphis had the right play call against the right defensive call and executed. So there was a disappointment on the defensive level as well. So it's you – no, know, not a lot of confidence going down East Carolina. East Carolina only lost to NC State, which is nationally ranked, 21 to 20. And then they laid it on Old Dominion, which Old Dominion had beaten Virginia Tech. So you're going on the road. You can't win at home. And now you're going on the road to play a very formidable East Carolina team that this program has gotten better and better every year under head coach Mike Houston. Last year made a bowl for the first time in like six or seven years. Um, <laughs> this next two weeks is absolutely critical. Uh, there has to be – some serious, well, they're going to have to, and the boys talk about this on the podcast. Uh, everything has to be evaluated at this point because the first two games are about as bad as it could be. 
uh, on every level. And there's a lot of evaluating going on right now. And we'll talk about it on the Navy football podcast post-game report that will follow the break after we discuss Navy Olympic sports. Yeah, Wags, you're exactly right. Uh, I think East Carolina represents the most formidable East Carolina team that we have faced in a very long time, and we're facing them at the exact wrong time. A lot of questions that can go into this. And again, please subscribe um, to uh, the podcast with Wags, Keenan, and EK. We've been having some issues with Apple Podcasts lately, so be, uh, be patient with us until we can fix that on Apple Podcasts. Find us on Spotify both the Sing Second Sports and the Navy Football Podcast. So let's break down everything else that happened before we go to break and hear from the boys about Memphis. It all started on Friday night after the parade, the trips to the mid-store, and the collecting of dirty laundry. Second-class parents weekend got off to a tough start Friday night. And we're not just talking, Chris Cervello, about how Gate 1 was closed at 6 p.m., creating like an hour-and-a-half-long commute to get off the yard. But men's soccer, Tim O'Dea's boys built a 3-1 lead against a very good GW squad, and then they saw it all fade away late in the second half. The Colonials had late goals from Carter Hum and Elias Norris, both amazing soccer names, to tie Navy men's soccer 3-3. Jackson Creel and Zach Wagner all notched their first goals of the season for the mids. Men's soccer is back in action tomorrow night, a little roadie down to Longwood. Navy women's tennis got its fall season underway by hosting the three-day Bill and Sandra Moore Invitational up at the BSC. The midshipmen competed in each of the five singles draws and three doubles flights. And then Navy ended the day yesterday with four mids as winners, highlighted by sophomore Emily Tannenbaum, uh, who you might remember was the number one singles phenom last year. Uh, She was the last one standing in both singles A draw and the doubles A draw, uh, winning the A draw doubles flight alongside Tannenbaum was senior Casey Akola, while Parvati Shanker claimed the single C draw via tiebreaker. The Navy men's cross-country team recorded a fifth-place finish in the Harry Groves Spike Shoe Invitational at the Penn State Golf Course in University Park, Pennsylvania over the weekend. Alexander Kirkland, a local product from Bel Air, finishes the mid's top finisher clocking a time of 26 minutes and 21 seconds in the 5.2-mile race. That's a little bit slower than what I used to run it in. All five of the Navy women's cross-country scoring runners finished in the top 30 to lead the midshipmen to a third-place finish at the very same Invitational up there. Senior Elizabeth Sullivan and junior Emily Booten uh, paced the mids runners with a pair of top 15 performances in the 6K meet. Let's talk golf. Little shout-out to Pat Owen. Coached the mids in his very last tournament. The Navy men's golf team opened the campaign over the weekend. They went up to Bethpage, not Bethpage Black. They played Bethpage Red in the Doc Gimler Invitational. Uh, They finished uh, 13 or 12 out of 15 schools with a 54-hole total of 13 over par. Keep an eye on sophomore Owen Huntington. Uh, He played in his first collegiate tournament and shot a one-under par 209 that featured a pair of 69s in the second and final rounds. Uh, Pretty damn good right there. Uh, Keegan Shreves had a good uh, weekend. So did Benjamin Valdez. Keep an eye, ladies and gentlemen, on Chip Deegan. He's a plebe on this team and the younger brother of four-year golf standout Chad Deegan. 
Saturday also saw a lot of good results. Uh, volleyball, and Wag's going to talk about that here in a second, beat Notre Dame 3-1. Uh, that was after dropping uh, a contest to East Carolina on Friday night down in Norfolk 3-1. So for Paco Labrador's ladies to come back and beat Notre Dame 3-1 was huge. Also, water polo had a great day up in Princeton. They defeated Santa Clara 9-8, and then they defeated Iona 13-11. And then finally, before I take a breath and hear from WAG, shout out to women's and men's rugby. They both bageled their, uh, their competition on Saturday. We saw Murph McCarthy's ladies play their first ever varsity match against Lander, crushed them 44 to nothing. And then Gavin Hickey's boys beat Southern Virginia 75 to nothing. Overall, other than the Memphis result, a pretty damn good day on Saturday. And Wags, break down a little bit more of the significance of the volleyball win. Well, yeah, that one really caught my eye, John, because it's an ACC opponent. Uh, it was a big, you know, Navy volleyball, let's admit it, had been struggling. They were two and six going into that match. So that was a very encouraging result. It was the first time that Navy had beaten a current Atlantic Coast Conference team since October 2nd, 1981. Paco Labrador was fired up. He said our blocking and defense as a whole were really dialed in. And uh, we should mention junior Avery Miller. She's a setter from Phoenix, Arizona. She surpassed 1,000 career assists. So that's a real nice milestone and a great win overall for the Navy volleyball squad. And, you know, maybe the Navy offensive coaches should go over to uh, the rugby pitch and figure out what the rugby team's doing offensively there's a lot of pitches in rugby, too, so it's kind of similar to triple option football. But, my God, 88 nothing to start over Citadel. Now 75 nothing. I mean, we got to get some competition for the rugby team, John. Well, Wags, I'll let Chris come in a little bit here. But, you know, you are not ever as convinced that you're going to get your ass kicked than when you're walking around the women's and men's rugby teams out there at Greenberry Point. I mean, shout out to Murph. The, the ladies look so good. They've got a combination of power and speed. We were talking to Rob Dunn about it. It was just fun to watch. But damn, like Chris, you and I talked about it. the sheer size of the men's rugby team. It does kind of look like, you know, a lot of those dudes could get some playing time. I know that's how Murph got his start. A lot of rugby players are football cast off, but these guys look like they could be starters. Yeah, it's an impressive uh, looking bunch, both before the game and then once uh, the whistle blows on, on the pitch. Um, if you haven't had a chance to get out there and watch either men's and women's rugby, uh, the next time you're in Annapolis, uh, de definitely take that in. I mean, very uh, impressive group of uh, young men and women um, and something that may be the bright spot of the fall uh, if we don't get things turned around over at Navy Marine Corps Memorial Stadium. Hey, John. Yeah, go uh, ahead. Do you know one guy that fans should look if they go to a rugby match? Lewis Gray. That guy is legit. And, uh, you know, I think that Navy feels he's one of the best players in the entire country. So that is a guy that you fly half Lewis Gray. He'll have the ball in his hand quite a bit in his position, but he is a very talented player. And uh, Chelsea Washington has the uh, honor of scoring the first try for women's rugby in its first varsity match. So that was kind of cool. But a lot of uh, a lot of people scoring for women's rugby in that you know, another shutout. It's just uh, pretty impressive. 
Wags, I know that Rob Dunn will remember this, but Chris, Rob, and I were standing there, and one of Navy's rugby players, the women's rugby players, took a hit from a Lander player that literally the entire crowd gasped. Like, I, I thought this woman was dead, and she got up and walked off on her own, and it was pretty effing impressive. So, yeah, I, 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 I echo Chris, if things continue to be a struggle uh, out there on Rao Boulevard, I say we go up to Greenberry Point and watch that. And again, shout out to the fans. It is a loud atmosphere out there. It's awesome. I wish I heard a little bit more of that in Alumni Hall for basketball, but I digress. Um, ladies and gentlemen, Sunday was pretty quiet. Um, offshore and regular um, intercollegiate sailing, they were in action all over the East Coast, up off Long Island in Oxford, Maryland, down in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, a lot of action there. And then finally, water polo finished off the weekend yesterday with a disappointing 11-9 loss to St. Francis of Brooklyn. St. Francis of Brooklyn, however, is number 18 in the country. Shout out to Louis Nicolau's guys who started this weekend ranked, I believe, at number 20. Um, I, I think after this weekend, they might actually be higher up. And we're excited to tell you that this coming week, we are going to hear from Louis Nicolau and Murph McCarthy about the early results for their squads, particularly the hit heard around the world out there on the rugby pitch, which, again, was absolutely ridiculous. Uh, before we go out, I do have to say that Chris and I had the honor on Saturday to talk to class of 62 grad Paul Galanti with the uh, Naval Academy Alumni Association and Foundation CEO Jeff Webb. It was just a really special day to be around a gentleman who had given up so much as a POW, as a Vietnam veteran, coming back to his alma mater uh, for his 60th reunion. Uh, we had the chance to watch him, check out our interview with him on Instagram. But this weekend was very special, not only being able to share time with him, share time with all of our friends at the, uh, at the various sporting events, but then also yesterday, as we all know, was the anniversary of 9-11, and I would be remiss if I didn't, as I do every year, remember class of 97 grad, class of 97 who was just having their reunion this past weekend, uh, class of 97 grad Jonas Panic, who lost his life in the Pentagon on 9-11. I had been with him the night before, and he will always, always be missed. Gentlemen, before we go out, anything you're looking forward to this week, Wags? Well, first of all, you were talking about sailing and offshore, I think women's soccer might have thought it was sailing on the Severn River on Sunday night. Uh, that game got called at halftime because of torrential downpours. John, I know you love women's soccer. Were you hardy enough to try to go out there in your slicker and, and brave the torrential rains? I, I went out there pregame. We had to go into D.C. Um, for the evening, but I went out there pregame and I was like, this is not going to be nice. Uh, the weather over the weekend was just really tumultuous. And, and last night, you're right, it, it was so bad that the pitch, which is an amazing pitch and shout out to everyone who maintains the pitch out there at Glen Warner. It, it just became unplayable and the weather was way too bad. So uh, I think that's just going to be not made up. And for women's soccer, the next up is Patriot League champions. You know, like, you know, this is where the season gets real uh, for men's and women's soccer. After the men go to Longwood on Tuesday, they pay, play Bucknell over the weekend and the women play 
Patriot League champion Bucknell. So for soccer, playtime is over. Patriot League season has begun. Let's see what happens. We are going to bring you all of the action uh, this coming week. We are going to have an interesting week as it's a bye for football. We'll break down what Ken Niamatololo says in his press conference today. But for the best of coverage going about Navy football, we're going to go to break. And when we come back, WAGS, Eric, and Keenan are going to break down what happened on Saturday in the loss to Memphis. Stick with us. This is Sing Second Sports. All right, Sing Second fans, a few announcements. Uh, as we mentioned, no football this week. Navy gets a bye as they prepare for ECU and Air Force in the weeks to come. Three more home games remain for the midshipmen in October. Don't miss any of the excitement in Annapolis this fall. For tickets, call 1-800-US-4-NAVY or visit NavySports.com. And while you're on NavySports.com, be sure to grab your basketball season tickets. Navy men's and women's basketball season tickets are on sale now. Join us at Alumni Hall all season long as the mids look to build off their exciting 2022 campaign. In addition, this year, all season ticket holders will be entered to win an authentic Navy football jersey, the same jersey that they wear for the Army-Navy game. For tickets, call 1-800-US-4-NAVY or visit NavySports.com. And one more announcement before we get to the second half of this week's wrap-up show. If you are an active or retired veteran and you need a loan of any sort, conventional mortgage, refinance, home equity, or even a reverse mortgage, you need to call New Day USA. Admiral Tom Lynch, captain of the 1963 Navy football team and a legendary admiral in the fleet, is the executive chairman of New Day USA, and he assures that veterans will always get the benefit of the doubt. Whereas another lender may turn down your application, New Day USA is more likely to say yes. So veterans, active and retired, if you need a home loan of any sort, contact New Day USA. Now back to the pod. Welcome everyone to another edition of the one and only Navy football podcast. I'm Bill Wagner. I've been covering Navy football and Navy athletics for Almost all of my 33 years at Capital Gazette newspapers and now with the Baltimore Sun. I'm joined by former Navy football stars, Keenan Reynolds and Eric Catani. Uh, fellas, we're not going to beat around the bush. Um, a tough loss to Memphis on Saturday at home, 37 to 13. Uh, we came out of game one, the Delaware loss, saying the offense has got to improve, but fortunately, Brian Newberry's got a solid defensive unit. <laughs> we come out of game two, and now we're worried about the defense as well. So let's start with defense because we spend a lot of time evaluating offense. Um, they gave up over 500 yards to Memphis, and uh, Seth Hennigan, the quarterback, had some real bombs, literally. He dropped a bomb on Navy twice. A uh, 50-yard pass on the first possession led to a touchdown, and then the real backbreaker, in my opinion, 79-yard catch and run on the first possession of the second half. Um, a lot of chunk plays, as Keenan mentioned. So, uh, you know, now we got concerns about the defense. And Coach Niamat was gracious and said, well, the defense got worn down. But the truth is those a lot of those chunk plays came before you would say that the, the defense had been worn down by being on the field too much. I mean, 
the first possession of the second half, you can't blame them being worn down. They just got beat. They uh, had a bad coverage assignment, and uh, wide receiver ran right past two D-backs. So, uh, Keenan, let me let you, you know, what were your thoughts on the defense? What did you see? What, what concerns you? Yeah, thanks, uh, Wags. I, I think what concerned me was, like, not getting off the field, not a 15 on third down is what Memphis was. Uh, that That's not going to get it done. Um, we talked a lot about how great they played last week, but the truth is that's how they were supposed to play against the Delaware team. Like, we, we expect to see that type of dominance against them, and that's not taking anything away with, with the way they performed. Um, because they made a lot of big plays. They, uh, I think they had 12 tackles for loss, which is uh, apparently like a tie for a school record in over the last like 10 or so years. I'm sure Scott will text us with uh, with correct metrics on that. But they played great last week. But that was expected against that type of team. So this was going to be a real test. We knew that from the jump. Much more athletic team, much more dynamic offense. And unfortunately, you know, it kind of showed. Uh, and when I say much more athletic, I'm comparing them to Delaware's offense last year and not necessarily us. Uh, but, you know, Obviously, 24, 35 uh, completions and attempts. That's that's a very high completion percentage. 415 yards, most of which came on chunk plays, and those chunk plays came on like third and long. So I think the first the first chunk play was third and nine, and we gave up like a 50 or 60 yard completion. Can't have that. Third and nine is when you're supposed to get off the field. You can't give up the cheap stuff on those long downs. Um, they only had two punts. We only forced two punts. Uh, I don't think we had any turn do we I don't know if we had turnovers and I may have uh we may have had turnover on downs but yeah I mean I think it's just uh it was a, a real litmus test for us to see you know this is you know big time competition from a AAC perspective and it was a good litmus test to see where we were defensively um compared to like last week against the FCS team Eric I believe you watched the game from the field but I, I'm not sure where you were in the stadium but what was your you know insights on defense what would you I mean I'm sure like all of us uh, you were a little surprised that the defense I mean that 500 yards of total offense is uh that's crazy yeah I was uh I was walking around the stadium and I was mostly watching in the uh the end zone view uh like you said the test of the defense and you know how we should have played against Delaware you know is how we should have played and I just looked at the stats for Delaware they played Delaware State um the quarterback had you know 240 yards so you know, they're not the most you know, prominent defense with you know, Joe Flacco back in the day. Um, but the defense, as Ken said, did not pass the test. It was uh, it was unique to watch it actually at the stadium versus, you know, just watching on, on, the, on the TV. And Coach Team I talked about last week is you wanted to start fast, play fast. And first series, as you said, Bill, quick touchdown. And it was it was an easy touchdown, too. It wasn't, you know, it was, it was in about, what, a minute? 45 seconds and then the same way the second half started super slow you, you just can't do that as you know especially the triple option offense and you know, any of your offense that needs you guys they, they can't let those big plays happen it was consistently just let down um defense had some some bright spots you know there was a opportunity at a, at a strip sack to get that ball over it was 10 to 7 uh, at the time you know switch the you know the momentum around but you know we didn't capitalize on that as well um so defense uh you know, had a, a solid team to play against, and uh, they, did, they did not show up. Yeah, I got uh, – John Marshall deserves some credit. He plays the striker outside linebacker position. He had a career-high 15 tackles. He was all over the place making things happen. He played well. Nick Strahl, uh, he's the Raider outside linebacker. He had eight uh, tackles and a sack. Navy did have four sacks. That was uh, 
safety, Avon Gibbons is the one who had the strip sack. Um, something that stands out to me, guys, as I look at this stat sheet. Will Harbor, number 54, had the number handed down to him by Diego Fago. He's the Mike inside linebacker. And as we all know, traditionally in Navy scheme, the Mike inside linebacker has been the team's leading tackler almost every year during the triple option era. The Mike linebackers led the team in tackles. Will Harbor is starting in the position where Diego Fago played last year. And Will Harbor had one assisted tackle. That's it. No solo tackles, no, only one tackle. Uh, I have to, my colleague, Catherine Fomenique, she even mentioned, is Will Harbor playing? And because she was writing a little sidebar story about the defense. And I'm like, yeah, he's, he's out there, but he, he ain't doing nothing. So I don't know what Memphis was doing, but they were blocking him. And when your Mike linebacker only has one tackle, that ain't good. Right, fellas? Yeah. yeah, yeah, but it's not it's not always his fault though, too. It's also the D line, you know, and the scheme that they're having as well. You know, they're not getting off the ball, they're not, you know, they're getting, you know, moved around or pushed. But you know, obviously speaking, that, that guy should be, you know, have the most tackles. Yeah, I, I don't want to dunk on him too much though, Bill, because I mean, looking at the stats again, he may have only had one assist tackle, but defensively, we only gave up 2.8 yards per rush. So, like the run game has been very, very stout both weeks, right? And I think um you know, I think the the lack of tackles probably has more to do with the the downfield presence of the pass game. I mean, they had per completion this week seventeen yards, so that's well beyond the second level for where somebody like that can make a play. Um, and so, my 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 guess, and not having like watched the film and no and not knowing Navy scheme, I would say that maybe Memphis kind of schemed away from running between the tackles and wanted to try to play more outside zone which is the reason why our outside backers had as many tackles as they did. Um, so that's what that's what I would give them. I don't want to dunk on them too bad uh, because, I mean, if you look at it, I don't think the problem was necessarily Will Harbor or anybody on the second level. I think the problem was on the on the back end and, and not being able to, to control those chunk plays. I mean, I don't think anybody expects us to shut down Memphis and, you know, have them get zero points, right? But what I do expect is – make them go the length of the field. Don't give them the cheap 50, 60, 70 yard plays to get them out of the hole where they don't have to sustain a drive. I think success for us looks like if a team's going to score 37 points, you're going to have sustained drives to score those 37 points. And if that's the case, they're not scoring that much because somebody's going to make a mistake along the line. Well, that is why we have you and Eric on here because you guys know football better than I. And I think you're absolutely right. It's a very good point. They were not having much success running the ball. And they didn't worry about it because they were having so much success throwing the ball. And I will tell you that sitting right next to me in the press box, and for though our listeners will not know this, but I'll tell you now, I sit literally right next to the opposing team's coach's box. And in 25 years of covering Navy football, I've heard a lot, but uh, what happened this week was over the top. The Memphis offensive coordinator, Tim Crampsey, who, by the way, was the offensive coordinator at Marshall last season. So he's uh, he's had two nice cracks at Navy here in two span of two seasons. But that guy was a first-class jerk, and you wouldn't believe the S-talk coming out of his mouth whenever they hit a big play. And in fact, the real, really bad one in the entire press box Heard it. You didn't have to be sitting next to him like I did. 
he was yelling so loud and screaming at the top of his lungs that everyone in the press box heard it. And it was after they hit the 79-yard touchdown, and he basically cursed Brian Newberry, the Navy defensive coordinator, and basically said, F you, Newberry, you MF, uh, keep playing quarters coverage on first down. You're so effing predictable. So, I mean, it was uh, unprofessional. It was not no class. It was unnecessary. Um, but I will say that in from his comment, sounds like they'd schemed up Navy pretty good and had seen some tendencies because that's why they took that deep shot. They they had seen on film what kind of coverages were in certain situations. What do you think of that? That's pretty crazy here, but you know it it is what it is. Like you, you people people there are a lot of there are a lot of folks in college football that 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 function that way so that that's not entirely surprising um as far as like the quarters thing i mean I, i'm pretty sure the touchdown was a post route so if you're playing quarters and you want to if you want to attack quarters all you got to do is find a way to pin down the the safety on the side that you want to go to and if you run any sort of crossing route any sort of like inside dig that safety has to react and then you've got a corner who's outside leverage one-on-one with a with a receiver and you run any type of post or inside breaking route down the field it's very tough to stop um the only person that can really make that play is the backside safety and that's assuming that they're not already occupied with somebody on the other side of the field. So, I mean, yes, yeah, schematically, if you know what you're doing and you know what coverage is, is going to be out there, you can run the right concepts to to expose the coverage. Um, and I mean, that happens against quarters three, two. I mean, it doesn't really matter what you run. If the person, if you if you if you've schemed up and you know what's going on, uh, you can make those types of calls. And you know, if they had if they have our tendencies, I mean, really, that only helps us because now we know that you know some people I think they have what our tendencies are. You go back to the drawing board, you readjust, you re- you rescheme, you change some things up to keep that from happening again. So uh, let's get to the offense. Um, seven points in the opener against Delaware, very disappointing. 13 points against Memphis. I can tell you, you're not going to beat any opponent in the American Athletic Conference scoring seven or 13 points. That's just not going to happen. Was, these teams are too good. They're too high-powered. Um, there's a lot to uh, digest here, but I'm just going to start, and I will give Ty Lavatai, the starting quarterback, credit. He really put it on himself in the post-game press conference, and basically what he said was, you know, I, I did not get the job done. I, his exact quote is, I played, I did not play fast. And I agree with that. I do not see him playing fast. I do not see him playing decisively, um, which is concerning because I was coming off the Army victory when we saw the confidence and we were told all offseason that he had newfound confidence and he had command of the offense. And the fact of the matter is not manifested itself in the first two games. And once again, we had in a game of almost entirely fullback quarterback carries. Um, whenever Mikel Haywood touches the ball, it's a positive play. I am on record right now saying this coaching staff has to do whatever it can dream up all sorts of new ways, different ways to get the ball in the hands of Mikel Haywood because he is a playmaker, but as fellas, I mean, and I'll go to Eric first so far in two games, the only player on the offense that has shown me that they're a consistent playmaker is Mikel Haywood. So, I don't know. I like I like some of the play calls that happen. Um, you know, especially he's a fullback. I like the fullback seam. 
uh, that was a great little, you know, little cut of the cloth of, of changing up a little bit. They, they probably saw something on, on defense. But, uh, but, you know, he almost dropped the ball. It was, a, it was a hard pass for him to catch. And, you know, he almost dropped it. made a great play and, and finished all the way through. Um, Ty is taking onus on that. Uh, I appreciate that. But just watching the uh, Keenan Price say about the hesitancy, he's not getting downhill. He's not making quick decisions. He's not reading it and, and getting off the ball fast enough to actually, uh, you know, penetrate the defense where they, where they need to be. You know, we had some long drives, um, which was you know, good to see here and there. But, you know, in the stadium and, and listening to the fans talk about, you know, hey, what's going on with, uh, you know, the offense? What's going on with the play call? What's going on with, the, you know, ties? Is there something else going on? So it's actually really interesting to hear the fans. Uh, they see things as well as we see things as, as former players and, and reporters of, you know, what's actually happening behind the scenes. And a lot of the guys are actually talking about, you know, recruiting. And then we were talking about, you know, bigger, stronger, faster. But always speaking, you know, uh, we're not seeing these guys perform as, you know, the former players has performed. So, and, and Keenan and I both said it, you know, if Ty gets, you know, over 1,000 yards, over 1,200 yards, we win games. Um, Bill, what, what's he averaging? Like 1.8, 1.9 yards per play? Two yards per carry. Through two games, yeah. he's averaging two yards per carry. Now he's taking negative yards, like when he has a pitch that goes out of bounds 10 yards behind the line of scrimmage, that's a negative yardage to him. Um, the, the, the mesh fumbles got charged negative yards to him, but Either way, we all see it. He's not he's – not, he's averaging two yards carry, and it looks like that. Yeah. Can, how can you <clears throat> describe it? He's not getting downhill fast enough, in my opinion. Yeah, so I'm, I just want to preface uh, what I'm about to say with, like, for all the people that are listening, like, obviously when you're breaking down a loss and you're breaking down less than stellar performance from one side or both sides of the ball, it's going to sound like very, like, pointed criticism. Um, but I think that everyone should know that both me and Eric, when we say these things are just coming from like, we're only repeating what's more than likely being said in the meeting rooms because we've been there. And I've also had games where I've played, you know, poorly and, and felt the heat. And I'm sure people had the same type of comments. So having said that, I feel like Ty really hit it on the head when you talk about not playing fast, because that's what I see. Like, he just it doesn't look like he's running with intention sometimes. Like, it looks like he's he's still he doesn't want to make a mistake that's the best way I could describe the way when I see him run the ball it looks like I just want to make sure I got to take care of the ball I gotta you know I can't make a mistake and I definitely understand the ball security because that's been a huge issue for us and I'm gonna get to that on the second half of this but like he's got to be we're not nobody's expecting him to run like Xavier or run like Malcolm but I think there's ample examples of people with his type of body that have played and been successful at Navy quarterbacks in the past, namely Zach A.B. and Will Worth, like the type of runners they were, they were not slashers. They weren't super quick. They weren't Malcolm, um, but they were what they were. They, they, they leaned into their size, leaned into their, their strengths and played hard and played fast. I need to see that from Todd. Nobody's expecting you to take a 75 yards, but you got it to be that big. You have to average more than two yards per carry. When you run, when you're hitting and you're hitting the second level, it shouldn't be, Am I going to get tackled? It should be, how do I make a cut or, or break through some tackles? Like, that's what I want to see more. I want to see more decisive runs. I want to see more aggressive, like, dy dynamic. I say dynamic, but you know, dynamic doesn't mean taking it 80 yards. Dynamic means using your size. Like, do your 6'2", 220. Like, lean on these dudes. They don't want to tackle that. 
People don't want to tack, tackle 6'2", 220, 25 times a game. It don't matter who you are or how tough you are. That, that gets tough. That's hard to do. So I just want to see him, like, pick the pace up and be more, like, have a command presence when he's running the ball, not just before the play, but, like, when you're when he's dealing it or when he's running it, be decisive and be, like, you know, just – I don't know. I don't really know how – I can't think of a word right now, but just it's just a thing that he has to start, like, digging into that I think we saw at the, at the Army game that he needs to lean into some more as he runs these plays. And then from an offensive perspective, as far as like calling the players or whatnot, I think during this bye week, we, I think the assessment in the offensive room has to be, okay, let's just like go back to square one. What we've been trying to do has not been very successful. So like what has, what has worked really well for us? And there's some things in a shotgun that I think have looked really good. And let's lean into that. And some people might say, well, that's not who we are. Well, I mean, if you're saying what we what you've seen is who we are, I mean, you got to make a change because it hasn't been successful. You know what I'm saying? In two games against an FCS opponent and against a division opponent. I'm not saying scrap the whole playbook. I'm just saying let's look at what we're doing well and let's start to lean into that more often. Now, obviously, that's what the offensive coaches are, are going to be doing over this next couple of weeks. But that's really the only answer that you can take at, that you can take out of this practice hard and then figure out what we're doing well and do more of that. Well, let me just read the numbers. Mikel Haywood, the slot back, and he's got great speed, and he he is a decisive runner. That's what Mikel Haywood hits it hard. Uh, he had 54 yards on eight carries, a long run of 17 yards. Anton Hall, Jr., the who was the starting fullback in the game one but was not starting fullback in game two after the fumbling issues, he had 39 yards on eight carries, including a 16-yard run, which I think that might have been the one – Eric liked or the play that he liked. Um, and Ty was 18 carries per net of 37 yards. And that's a 2.1 average. It's just not good enough. And that's a lot of carries. He's eight more carries than the next highest person. Logan point, the backup fullback had 10 carries. So if you're carrying that ball that much, you better be making something happen. Um, the one positive play, really positive play for Navy was Ty connected with Anton Hall Jr., which was interesting to me. Um, that pass down the middle that Navy does on play action usually goes to a slot back. I'm not sure the last time I remember it going to a fullback was an interesting uh, call, but um, Anton Hall bobbled the ball, and it looked like yep. he was stumbling. And, my God, he somehow hauled in the pass maintained his speed and then he showed the speed that the coaching staff has talked about by pulling away from a safety for a 62 yard catch and run touchdown so it's a shame because Anton Hall has shown flashes of why he was the starting fullback but he fumbled again he got stripped while running up the middle and fumbled again and it was a lost fumble so that's the fumbling issue is is just cannot happen um so it's an interesting thing. You've got Xavier Arline, who came in at the end of the game, mop-up time. Memphis had its you know, reserves in, so it's hard to even judge how he did. But he got a little run. But, I mean, we all know Xavier is a more – when you said dynamic. I'll say dynamic in terms of quick, got some moves, a little juke to you, some speed. Xavier has that, and he would be a change of pace to, to tie. But the problem is – Xavier's just not a very good passer. He was 0 for 3 with an interception, and that was a really bad pass 
for the interception. Um, so, I mean, Ty does have a little more capability throwing the ball. I mean, it's a real conundrum, but my thing is the, the Navy quarterback has to be a running threat. And if Ty doesn't step up here in the next few games and show he's a running threat, then I think you got to look at either not running him as much and just if he, he's the guy that runs the offense best, that's fine. But I don't know that he should be getting 18 carries. What do you think, Keenan? Yeah, so that, that's actually to the, a, a really good point and, and kind of what I was trying to say as far as like leaning into what you do well. So if you feel like over the next few weeks, you're like, okay, we don't tie his strength is not carrying it 20, 25 times a game. So we need to reorient those carries. Well, here's the problem with that, right? The type, the person that I'd really like to, to get 18 to 20 carries is Anton Hall. After seeing him play over the last couple of weeks, I know we were pretty hard on week on week one, but after seeing him like again this week and some of the things he was able to do, he averaged almost five yards per carry. He's probably, you know, he's obviously number two as far as dynamic runners um, that have played so that have like really gotten significant action on offense behind Mikael Haywood. So you got to find a way to get the ball into their two hands. But the problem is you can't right now. Nobody, you can't trust Anton Hall to take care of the rock. So not only does that hurt you from a turnover perspective, but it also hurts you in the fact that you can't have one of your better runners on the field because I don't know if you're going to hang on to the ball. So it's like a two a two edged um, issue that they got to find a way to get solved in the next two weeks. He's not a guy that needs to be on the on the sideline. I mean, he's just like looking at our, our weapons, he's one of our better weapons. So he, we can't afford to not have him play, but we also definitely can't afford to keep turning the ball over. So got to find a way to get that corrected. I don't know how, they're gonna, how we're going to do it, but if there's anybody that can do it, it's Coach Jasper, Coach Nehemiah, and, and the offensive staff. So I think they're going to get him squared away. But, you know, like you said, it, it may be worth looking at, okay, like maybe we, 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 we keep tied at around 10 carries. And we try to get Mikhail and Anton and some of the other younger guys that are really good runners more involved. And how that looks, I don't know. But that's the whole point of being a coach. That's why they pay them the big bucks is to figure out what that looks like in the scheme of what Navy wants to be and what they want to do on offense. So, Eric, um, in the beginning, prior to the season, we had our discussion on the preview pod about the fullbacks and their size. And they're in the range of 205, et cetera. Um, and – you know, the answer where they, they said, well, the Navy fullback doesn't need to be a 230 pound bruiser anymore because we're running some zone blocking schemes and we need a guy that's quick can hit holes. Well, the one thing that's kind of occurred to me is that through two games, I'm not seeing zone blocking schemes and holes in which a smaller, quicker fullback is more is effective. I'm seeing a fullback running up the middle and having to try to he's going, he's meeting a defender and he needs to be able to power through and lower the shoulder and get an extra yard or two. And I don't know if you've noticed, but in two games, I can count at least eight times that the Navy fullback noticeably got knocked back. Like it was obvious. I mean, he got drilled and went backwards a couple yards. What are you seeing? What's your evaluation of these fullbacks so far, Eric? I'm seeing the same exact thing that you just stated. They are not driving forward. They are not getting yards after contact. And uh, they're not doing a very good job of, of converting. Um, and then especially with our offense, um, the fullback has to be the guy that the coach can say, okay, it's three, third and two, fourth and one. Can we rely on this fullback to get those yards? And then, you know, when you're not 230, you're not 240, like, like, like Keno's saying about Ty, like, use your way, 220, landing people. Don't, people don't want to tag up people that are 220. 
the same thing about a fullback that's 240 that just wants to show up and just be a dog and play all day. Like that guy wants it. That guy wants a bruise. Highest players don't want a bruise, especially to get to the second level of the safeties and DBs. They're trying to go to a league. They don't want to keep banging with the fullback. So I say before, you know, like as Keno was talking about, you know, this is not a, a knock on the guys, but you know, I'm still waiting for them to show up um, in that aspect. And especially this bye week, you know, we have a, a solid team that to play in two weeks. ECU just beat Old Dominion. Old Dominion beat Virginia Tech week one. So like we have a very hard schedule coming up these next six games. And I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not giving up on the guys at all by any means, uh, but they, you know, they need to take this bye week and, and really strap their helmets on and get that toughness back, especially the offensive line needs to show up and you know, help tie out, help those fullbacks out, help the A-backs out make those plays. Another thing that uh, we haven't talked about, but has been very disappointing for me is the blocking on the perimeter. I have not been a fan of how that's looked. Um, there were several plays where there were corners and safeties penetrating in the backfield and making it very difficult for, you know, A-backs on the pitch to have any room to work. Um, I saw Mikael Haywood go airborne a lot, way more than he should. He shouldn't be jumping as much. Um, but, I mean, I, I did see a few uh, a few guys get beat on the, on the perimeter. So that's another element that, like, doesn't really get – it doesn't – there's no stat line. There's nothing you can, like – unless you know what you're looking at, it's, it's – or it's, like, blatantly obvious – that kind of stuff doesn't get caught up. But I saw a couple of times where we had a good looking play and somebody may run by their assignment. Like it's just little things that if you're not tuned in to what the play call is, what, what's going on, it, it's hard for like, you know, most people to see it. But I definitely noticed it. For I saw some of it a little bit last week. It was really hard to get on the perimeter last week with how they were playing. But specifically uh, this week when we did get on the perimeter, there were a few times where we just got beat on the edge. And that just can't happen. It's hard enough to get the pitch as is, but we got to be able to sustain blocks on the edge. That's, that's funny. Say, you know, I was with, uh, in the brotherhood tailgate with, uh, Curtis Sharp and, uh, he, I introduced my friends over there and he's a guy was wide receiver, uh, slash a uh, wide tackle. Uh, cause you know, he was 260 pounds, six, five, and he did a phenomenal job in the perimeter, you know, helping the guys out. Well, you're exactly right, Keenan. I think this dovetails with something you brought up on a previous pod, the inability to cut. And I'll have to go look at the exact rule, but is a slot back not allowed to cut a corner or a safety on the perimeter anymore? Is that now illegal? As far as I know, I'm pretty sure that that's the case. And I think there's also some issues with crack blocking. Now, I don't think you can be as – like it's not as physical as it used to be back in the day. Like, But I, I just think that there are several plays when, when, I, when I was playing, and I know for sure when Eric was playing – where you see guys on the ground. And when you get those DBs on the ground, that's how those pitches were getting 20 yards. That's how Sean White rushed for three, 350 is we were cutting, we were getting guys on the ground yeah. on the edge. So you can't really do that anymore. So now you got to really chest guys up, which requires a, a different level of physicality. And you got to want to do that. Like that's not, you know, like cutting was, I think we were, we were bought, like guys wanted to do that. They, they took pride in getting guys on the ground, but now that you can't do that anymore, now it's like, okay, take pride in it, man, and somebody up. Like I'm, I'm a man, you know what I'm saying? And you're not going to infringe on my, on my spot. Like this is, this is my grass. You know what I mean? Like that's what, that's kind of the mentality that you got to have on the perimeter. It's not easy. Don't get it twisted. Blocking on the perimeter is not easy because you're not, you know where the ball is. The DB has infinite ways that he can go left or right. And you have to have great technique and be very physical. So it's a tough job. Don't get it. We're not minimizing that at all. And the guys are definitely probably working their tails off to get it done. But it has to be better. That's just the reality of the situation. Right. The reason I brought up the cut block is because the one play that really jumped out as me is that there's a 
a pitch to the slot back and he got tackled almost immediately after catching the pitch. When I watched the replay, I saw that his fellow slot just blatantly missed his block and he wasn't diving at the guy's legs. He was trying to straight up block him. And I'm like, oh, I guess he can't cut anymore out there. I didn't realize they had outlawed that. Um, yeah. So, guys, uh, real quick, Chris Bello is our producer behind the glass. He always brings kind of more of a fan perspective. Hey, Chris, do you have any questions for the guys before we wrap this up? I think I would just ask, you know, as, as they wrap, I mean, you know, maybe just one more comment on, you know, so you have two weeks before the ECU game and then you, you have uh, Air Force immediately after that. What do these two weeks look like? Uh, you, you know, break, break that down. I mean, are there are guys getting healthy? Are they, are they you know, retooling the, the playbook? I mean, you touched on it a little bit, but just help the fans understand what the next two weeks look like. Uh, I can imagine the next two weeks look like um... – well, I'm actually not a fan of this early of a bye week, to be honest. Um, as a player, I always look at, as a, for a bye week, if possible, you know, around four or five, six games in, because one, your body's banged up. You went right, right from training camp to school to right to the regular season. So your body still, you know, is banged up. So with week three, I think it's early um, for the guys, but, you know, for most times recovery, get in the playbook, get in the weight room, rehabbing. And just get your mind right for the for you know ECU. Yeah, I think it's it's like twofold of like you gotta you're trying to find the balance of like are we not physical enough? So if you're not physical enough, then you gotta then you like camp part two, right? Um on the flip side of that, if you have a lot of guys injured, you gotta get guys healthy. So that's a pretty delicate balance. I think there's gonna be a lot of self-scout, uh, probably some good on good action going on, uh, especially prepping for Air Force. I, I would expect like this this bye week would be like all Air Force or like majority Air Force to utilize that time off. I don't think you need two weeks to get ready for ECU, and it's not a knock against them. It's just like you got Air Force coming right after them, so you want to have some sort of like level set of preparation for Air Force. So I'd expect some good on good action to really get after the option, um, get guys back tuned in to, to getting ready for a service academy game because I think regardless of what happens against ECU, like that Air Force game is going to say a whole lot about a lot. Um, so I think people, rec folks recognize the importance of that because you win that game, like you got a whole, whole different season. Right. And, and we have been here before where we've been one in three, oh, and two and really struggled. Uh, and, and then we beat air force and now your whole season just takes a completely different turn. So I think that that's going to be a real challenge, but so I would expect this week to be partly focused on prepping for that game. Well, I agree with Eric that this is early for a bye week and Navy doesn't have another bye week until prior to Army. They, they don't have another bye week in all of October, which is surprising to me, but they go right on through till November 19th against UCF. And then they finally have time off before Army. Um, but I will say this, <laughs> maybe it is a good time for a bye week because they really need to go back to the drawing board on both sides of the ball after what happened to Memphis, but particularly on offense. So maybe it's a chance to regroup. Um, we're going to take it out. That's the Navy football post-game report on the Navy football podcast brought to you by New Day USA. Uh, we are not doing a second pod this week because there's no game to preview. So we will be back the following week when we preview the East Carolina game. Thanks to Keenan, Eric, and Chris Cervello, our producer. This is the Navy Football Podcast, and we are out.
thoughts and opinions expressed on this pod are our own and don't represent the views of the Naval Academy Athletic Association, the United States Naval Academy, or any organization for that matter. Play-by-play calls from the Navy Radio Network are used in the opening of the show and from time to time will be part of the podcast segment.